and happy Halloween 2010, and welcome to our monthly special edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, here on Achieve Radio. I'm Ben, and this is Return to Rendlesham 5, the fifth in our historic radio series, making the 30th anniversary year of the dramatic UFO events that took place at Rendlesham Forest and the and the adjacent NATO air bases in Suffolk, England, in December 1980. Well, hi, everyone. This is Paul Eno. Uh, these events were no trick-or-treat experience for the brave men who endured them, but there are some who disagree. There are the skeptics, and this show will take a look at their arguments. Interestingly, we contacted several prominent and respect- respected skeptics some weeks ago, the only one to respond was author Ian Ridpath, who thanked us for the invitation, but pronounced the quote, I do not do paranormal shows, unquote. When I responded that this is not your usual paranormal show and has the highest standards, he did not reply. So, well, we will soldier on without the skeptics, whose absence says more to us than their presence ever could. I guess so. Well, anyway, anchoring our panel today is our good friend, Dr. William J. Burns, author, speaker, publisher of UFO Magazine and Filament Books, well-known from Future Theater and the History Channel series UFO Hunters and Ancient Aliens. On our panel today are witnesses to the incident, former U.S. Air Force personnel John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. Uh, we hope that uh, their former colleagues, uh, Larry Warren and Tim, Tim McGarrick and uh, anyone else who cares to will be able to join us by phone at some point uh, during the show. All right, so our call in numbers today are 888-235-7374, toll-free U.S. and Canada. From the U.K., the number is 203-318-0688. And Bill and Jim, uh, Bill, Jim, and John, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, Jim and John, good to be with you on the panel. Very good. Nice to be with you, too, Bill. Okay. Very good. Now, Bill, I'm just going to ask you before we begin to give a brief introduction to the case for those who are joining us late. Well, this is a case that, depending upon the person you speak to, is either one of the most incredible UFO sightings of all time or, according to the skeptics, either one of the greatest misunderstandings of all time. So essentially, at the end of December in 1980, and... uh, my head is, it's funny, as I'm saying this, my, uh, my head is writing uh, the UFO Hunters book uh, from season one for, the, for History Channel and for Macmillan. And in it, two back-to-back chapters are the Rendlesham UFO case, and the next chapter uh, is Cops versus UFOs, and that's the Alan Godfrey case. And it's, what's funny is... The two cases are a month apart, which is really kind of coincidental, maybe, maybe not. But depending upon who you speak to, as I said, this is probably Britain's greatest UFO case, uh, still unsolved, still debated, still controversial, in which on two successive nights at the end of December, and the dates are different depending upon who you're talking to, Uh, On the one night, uh, there were lights over Rendlesham Forest, and um, James Penniston, and as part of a security detail, was out there in a group, saw an object in the forest, saw an object land in the forest, touched the object, physically came in contact with it, and in his sketchbook, wrote down a copy of a series of graphics that were on the object. The object took off through the forest. On On the next night, the object came back, 
a group uh, went to a Christmas party with uh, Colonel Conrad and Lieutenant Colonel Halt. Uh, Charles Halt said, basically, look, if the object is back, I'm going to put this all to rest. He's a total skeptic. He wanted to bury this thing once and for all. Goes out to the forest with a security detail, a series of light oils. Uh, those are lights that light up the night, radios, walkie-talkies, his own linear voice recorder. And astoundingly, sees an object, follows it through the forest, sees a series of lights, it goes into a clearing where the object splits into five different objects and then basically takes off. Now, that's kind of the quick, oversimplified, probably with no detail story of what happened in December 27th, 28th, 1980. And there are all kinds of versions of the story, but that's it in a nutshell. Both Charles Halt and James Penniston spoke about this at the um, National Press Club all the way back in 2007. A very compelling story. Nick Pope has said that this story is not made up. It's real. It's not a hallucination. The MOD investigated this. And but there are still a number of details yet to be nailed down. Uh, Colonel Conrad, the base commander, said it never happened. It was all a delusion, hallucination, and um, he was there. He was looking up at the sky and saw no lights, and yet Charles Halt has said that there was a sentry in the observation tower overlooking the entire base. After all, it was a very important NATO air base, and that sentry saw the entire thing, including lights from an object being um, shined down, shown down, on the nuclear storage facilities on the base. So depending upon who you speak to, that's what it is. And I hope tonight we can deal with some of the skeptical arguments from David Clark, Ian Redpath, uh, uh, Kevin Cond, and a few others. Sure. Okay, well, let, let's do it then, Bill. Take it away. Well, um, I'd love to start with um, Jim Penniston. Jim, one of the real... One of the real skeptical arguments came from an interview probably a decade after the event that um, Colonel Conrad gave to Dr. David Clark. David Clark has said he did not believe this was a UFO incident and gave some very detailed arguments. We'll get to Ian Redpath later. But in Conrad's interview with Clark, he basically said that you told two different stories. One story to him about seeing lights from a distance and the story, obviously, that you told at the National Press Club of approaching the object, touching the object and sketching out, copying out some of the um, some of the details on the side of the craft. Jim, can you comment on that? Yes, that's true. With Colonel Conrad, I think that's an unauthorized release to that letter. Uh, but that is true. What I told Colonel Conrad, I was under orders to tell him that. Very interesting. So um, can I ask you who gave you those orders? Those orders were given to me at the AFOSI building by two men that uh, did not identify me, uh, to identify themselves to me, but I'm assuming they were somehow affiliated with OSI. So, okay, this is okay. This is an astounding revelation, and I want to make sure that every listener understands this. In Colonel Conrad's interview with David Clark, he basically accuses Sergeant James Penniston of telling two different stories. One, 
the story that he told Conrad of seeing lights in the distance and the other story of um, touching the object, getting up close and personal and sketching the uh, graphics on the side of the object. And what you're saying, Jim, is that it's true. Colonel Conrad is not lying. You did tell the colonel that, but you told him that strictly because you were under uh, very um, stringent orders from. Well, uh, right, Bill. The orders. Uh, see, OS, you got to understand the command relationship. Uh, the base commander does not work for OSI, and uh, OSI was conducting an investigation, which are required to do under uh, various DOD uh, regulations and PRP and things like that. They, they were conducting an investigation. They gave me a sanitized story after I told them. Uh, I gave them my full uh, account of what happened, and um, they gave me a sanitized story, which is exactly, and here's the odd thing about it, the, uh, and if the uh, when we did go up to uh, uh, Colonel Conrad's office and uh, first Colonel Halt's office, um, you know, we were required to write statements. Uh, at a Colonel uh, Halt's office. And, of course, this is the same morning that I'd seen OSI. And, uh, yeah, I was under orders that this is what I'm going to tell them. And I went up there and I rewrote a statement, uh, best I could remember from OSI, which was more generic. I uh, got within, I don't know, 50 feet, uh, things like that. And uh, the interesting thing about it is is that uh, uh, I did sign that statement, too. But the statement that's out on, has been posted out and about uh, with uh, the skeptics and everything else, it's an unsigned statement. But the funny part of it is, it's the same statement, the same information that the OSI told me to say. And so, in other words, you were acting under orders from the OSI, and Colonel Conrad was out of that OSI chain of command. Right, I was ordered, if I was asked, interviewed, or anything like that, other than from, you know, aside, that this is what I was going to say. And that's what I did. And uh, more recently, I did have a, a private conversation with uh, Major General Williams, and uh, I told him the whole story. I told him exactly what happened on OSI. And I was under orders, and he said he fully understood that. Now, gentlemen, the OSI stands for what? James? Uh, Air Force Air Force Office of uh, Special Investigation. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, um, I guess the question that folks would Colonel have Conrad is... Conrad is correct. You know, Colonel Conrad is not lying. He's telling the truth. Okay, that's important to note. Um, but why would the base commander... Now, you obviously, you're a career Air Force. So why would the base commander be out of the OSI loop? In other words, why could they let's just say, supersede his need to know? Because OSI, their role is uh, uh, to work as an investigation, as an investigative uh, entity. And they do all kinds of things, from drug uh, investigations to whatever. And they might occasionally go back and back brief uh, the base commander on something and give them an overlay or something. But they don't work for, for the base commander or the wing commander. Uh, they're independent of those folks. And that's just the way they are set up at every base by design. 
So it's funny what you're describing. I, I mean, if in civilian terms, it's almost as though the OSI would be in a, a civilian police force, kind of like um, internal affairs, where internal affairs can operate inside a police precinct or a police command. And the commander of that precinct, a captain, let's say, would um, be outside of the investigation chain of command from um, Bureau of Internal Affairs. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's just the way it is. Matter of fact, they weren't, uh, they didn't even wear uniforms. Um, and then their role is a little different overseas because overseas, their chain of command falls under, uh, uh, the State Department. Fascinating. So it's, so, so it's not even uh, under Department of Defense. It's Department of State. Their role overseas falls under the State Department. Stateside, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I'm sure it's under Department of Defense in the States. I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty sure it is. Well, okay, that clears up something major. It clears it up for me from my chapter, but it also clears up something major to um, connect these two different stories. Um, did Colonel... Now, uh, the obvious follow-up question, Jim, is this before I get to John. The obvious follow-up question is this. Did you ever tell – I mean, you're telling this to us now on the air. Did you ever say this to Colonel Conrad or make any attempt to um, contact Colonel Conrad and say, look, the story I told you was dictated to me by the OSI. In fact, here's the real story. Are you asking me that, Bill, or John, or who are you asking? No, you, Jim. No, you. Uh, no, I never talked to Colonel Conrad. I talked to his superior. Well, he's the wing commander, ex-wing commander. And I told, uh, I was quite frank with, uh, uh, General Williams about it. And I wanted, you know, let him know that, you know, it always has bothered me ever since, uh, you know, the incident. Sometimes, you know, you have to do orders and that's, uh, they, you always agree with him, but that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, OSI was conducting an independent uh, investigation. You know, and, uh, you know, do I, now am I, uh, do I believe that Colonel Conrad's being completely forthright with everything he's saying? No. In that release document, I'm saying what he said about me is true. That's all I'm saying. Okay. What, what, um, what do you think Colonel Conrad might not be forthright about? I have no idea. I'm not going to bring that up. I mean, that's guessing. I mean, I'm not going to. Okay. Fair enough. Um, John Burroughs, uh, in probably the, the biggest argument, the heaviest weight argument that the skeptics like Ian Ridpath have hey, leveled. Paul, we'll get to... uh, uh, Bill, are you there? Yes, can I, I am. Comment on, can I comment on Colonel Conrad? Because I was in the middle of that whole thing. I know exactly what Oh, please, on. please comment. Okay. First of all, Dave Clark and I have gone back and forth on issues, and it came up about Colonel Conrad, and I suggested that he contact Colonel Conrad and see if he would talk about it, which he did. And after that, I got in the middle of I, – I spoke with Colonel Conrad this summer. I actually met face-to-face with him, and I got in the middle of all this. And one of the things what Jim commented earlier was what Colonel Conrad was commenting on was supposed to be private between Clark, him, and I. And when Robert Hastings and Colonel Hart went on the offensive about two and a half, three months ago about how none of them would refuse to ever comment about this, um, Dave Clark released what Colonel Conrad had said 
in his letter, unauthorized. But number two, what hasn't been discussed, if you go into the letter more deeply, Colonel Conrad even admits he's not sure what happened to us. He believes that something did happen to us and that it's unexplainable. So it's just not the fact that he comes out and says nothing happened or the fact that what Jim told him was one thing and something different, but he does admit in that letter that he believes something did happen to us and he's not sure what it was. And he said yes. if the people had the time and the money, maybe they could figure out what it was. But he even did leave it open to be it could be from something from somewhere else. He's not sure himself. Right. Uh, I read the letter. Now, um, also, uh, uh, Colonel Conrad comments that he claims that he was also there and not in the forest, but looking up at the sky that night and he could not see any lights. Um, well, and that, I'm sorry, could you comment on that? Yeah, I'll comment on the whole thing. Here's the thing that was going on, and this isn't speculation. There was what you call CYA was going on. And when this whole thing hit, and what Jim and I, knowing what we know and what's going on is, it was handed over to the investigator and looked at. When they say there was no cover-up, what they're saying is, is that they're admitting that it happened. They're admitting that they looked into it. But what's not being stated is, is what they found out and the fact that what went on behind the scenes, to include that General Gabriel came in, took all the information, and all the reports and everything disappeared, and the fact that Conrad was covering for Williams and Ziegler was covering for Conrad and Williams. That was all going on. And the, and the fact that they have never disclosed other than to say that they're not sure what it was, which very well could be. They very well could have looked at this whole thing, and, and their final conclusion is they're not sure what happened to us. I want to get to something that Colonel Holt said, because here's the disconnect with what Colonel Conrad said. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, as I said, I read the letter. I agree with you that that's exactly what he said. He wasn't sure what happened. Uh, there should be a further investigation. It's still up in the air. We just don't know. But... When uh, Colonel Holt and Gary Heseltine were on UFO Hunters, uh, Gary suggested to Colonel Holt that there should have been someone up in the observation tower at the base. That would have been standard procedure, uh, a sentry up there who would have a, a complete 360-degree view of the base. And in fact, Colonel Holt revealed that there was someone there that night. He didn't want to use the person's name. He was in email contact with that person. And the person absolutely said that he saw not only the entire event, the lights in the forest, but he saw an object shining a beam down on the storage facilities. My guess is it would be the storage facilities for the nuclear warheads um, at the base. Now, did Colonel Holt ever share that information with you, or is that something you know independent of Colonel Holt? Okay, the bottom line is, and, and this is what Jim and I are going to stick by as far as what we're going to talk about, we're not going to comment on, okay, some of that stuff because of the security implications of the whole thing. But there is someone that's gone on record, and he's been interviewed, and he's on record now, saying he was in the tower that night and did observe some things. And... The fact about Conrad and Hall is you have to understand the military. There's a code of conduct between officers. And the last thing you want within the military is, whether it happened or not, 
what's basically expected is you don't comment on that. You don't talk about this. You don't, you don't come out on the record. And some of the statements Hall has made has upset some of these officers because not only does it state what was going on, you know, what he has to say, but it also drags them further into it, which, which do you understand how they don't want to be involved in this and they don't want their name brought into this and they don't want to comment on this. So that even today, uh, 30 years later, there is still, it's not just a code of silence, but it's also a code of silence and, let's say, military etiquette among officers that there are some things you just don't talk about, even though they're decades old. Would that be a correct statement? Right. And if you look at Colonel Connors' letter, he even stated that. He said there are things that Colonel Hall has said that he's very upset with. He talked about OSI's involvement and everything else. And Colonel Connors was very upset with that. That was in the letter. That's stuff that they don't want to put out there. And, and can you understand why? Because each time you say something, then it goes deeper and deeper, and then it goes into the whole protocol of what you were doing and everything else, even to go back as far as just this conference they had about a month ago in D.C., where there was some very, very well, things were stated about how they were still talking about protocols that went on with, with security of those missile silos that wasn't even supposed to be discussed to this day. And and what's so and what's so astounding about this is that here's a case where if you are a senior officer in in a, a deputy command position, you are writing a report about something that happened. I mean, it's not your job to write a report and kind of say that the personnel under your command are delusional or hallucinating or fabricating or confabulating. You're writing a report about something you saw with your own eyes and have. And since you're recording that incident on a voice recorder, you're going to write a report that's not going to be a disconnect with what's on that voice recorder. And you're writing it for the purpose of going up the chain of command. And for that, you're being criticized. And I thought from reading Conrad's letter very harshly um, because of a breach of military protocol. Well, no, it's clear. And, and, and another thing is, is when you have involvement where something happens with the military, you know, that's considered national defense. And, and please, when I tell you this, I'm not trying to pick on one particular case right now, but whenever you have anything happen that's out of the norm with the military, it's got to fall under national defense. You can't argue that because something went wrong. And the last thing they're going to want is that stuff being put out, you know, put out there. And even the memo was not released to the public. It was meant to go up to the MOD and go from there, and eventually somehow they did get it out. So so what's so interesting is that this isn't the case of a lieutenant colonel going public, blowing a whistle. This is a case of somebody doing something inside the military chain of command, following procedure the way he believed procedure should be followed to give an accurate statement about something that may have been a serious breach of security in a in um, in a very important secure NATO base, and then that memo gets out, and of course, that person then gets criticized by the person who was his um, commanding officer. Um, what? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Please. Well, yeah, no, it's clear that Colonel Connor wasn't happy with what how how it's been talked about. 
And he doesn't blame Colonel Hart, I believe, for just being released. He just blames Colonel Hart for continuing to talk about it and talking about things that they don't want to talk about. Even if you listen to what General Williams said, he won't confirm or deny to this day it happened. He will comment on certain things, but he will not confirm or deny the incident. Okay, so you're looking at these guys, they don't really want to talk about it, and even Colonel Conrad did openly admit that he can't explain what happened to us, and if you look at Lieutenant Baran's statement and some of the other statements, they all openly state that they realized that something happened to us, and it was unexplainable, okay, which again, that leads to what the Air Force's one thing they did state to CNN was, they stand by what Colonel Hall has said, and that it's unexplained what happened to us. So is that not a problem when you can't explain what went on? That is certainly a problem. Did you have a conversation? I, uh, did I hear you say that you had a conversation with David Clark about um, Conrad's statement? I Yes. Uh, Clark and I went back and forth on it. Um, he showed me the letter. I knew about this letter way before it went out. Um, um, I knew exactly what was going on, and to be honest with you, he never should have released it, not because that it could be damaging, but when you contact somebody under that umbrella of stating that you're just asking the question and it's not going to be released, and he even told me when he gave it to me that he didn't want me talking about it to anybody because he didn't have permission to release it, that then he turns around and does it, and the problem is, too, now, you've got a letter out there with a man going into some questions that was asked of him, but he's not coming on the record and talking about it now. So that's not even fair either, because these questions that you're talking about what Colonel Conrad said should be addressed to him, but he doesn't want to go on the record and be interviewed on this. Okay, fellas, uh, we're going to have to take a break now. We'll take a breather at the bottom of the hour, and we will be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, number five in our historic series on the Rendlesham <coughs> excuse me, UFO Affair of 1980 uh, with Bill Burns, Jim Penniston, and John Burroughs. Stick with us. AchieveRadio.com. Hi, folks. This is Paul Eno, co-host of Behind the Paranormal here on Achieve Radio. We're very pleased to have as our sponsor New River Press and Barking Cat Books, publishers of some of the most unusual New Age titles on the market today. Along with four books by moi, New River Press offers the blockbuster on animal communication, Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator by Karen Anderson, Shadows on My Shift, Real Life Stories of a Psychic EMT by Psychic Medium Sherry Lee Devereaux, Achieve Radio talk show host of Opening Your Intuitive Eyes, and in a true story that will break your heart with its beauty, especially if you've ever lost a child. There's 41 Signs of Hope by Dave Kane. 
talked about the ongoing love and communication between a father and a mother and their son, youngest victim of the 2003 nightclub fire in Rhode Island. Finally, from Barking Cat Books, don't miss the action adventure that spans a thousand years, Heaven's Wave, a novel of the doomsday prophecy of 2012 by Dierlein. Visit NewRiverPress.com, BarkingCatBooks.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookstore. Ever thought about Machu Picchu and the civilization of the ancient Incas? Well, join the folks from Rock Your Life, Dave Rogers, myself, Mike Hancock, and Vincent Barra, the Psychic Psychic, for an extraordinary trip in 2011 in September to Peru and Bolivia, Lake Titicaca, Lima, Cuzco, Machu Picchu, all of your favorites in Inta La Paz. We'll see you there in Bolivia. Peru 2011. Go to www.souljourneys.co.nz. AchieveRadio.com. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's our October monthly special on Halloween Day. And appropriately, we're dealing with the uh, Rendlesham uh, UFO Affair of 1980. It's the fifth in our historic series on that, and we're very happy to have with us today uh, Bill Burns, anchoring our panel, publisher of UFO Magazine, and well-known to everyone from UFO Hunters, and also uh, heroic U.S. Air Force eyewitnesses to this amazing event, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. And we were, we were talking today essentially about the, the skeptical arguments, but we're also getting into some of the security matters, and uh, that's where our conversation was left off. Um, fellas, uh, take it away. John, I think I interrupted you. Uh, so you can certainly continue your thoughts, or Bill, or whoever wants to take it. I'm hoping John can pick up on what he was saying as we went to break. Well, all I'm saying is is that if you look at an incident, okay, if people want to say it's a cover-up all the time or it's this and that. When you have an incident that you don't know what's going on, you want to investigate it. And the last thing you want to do is have the stuff come out, especially when you can't explain it completely, or what you're doing, or to give up what you would do and how you would handle this and whatever else you would do. And the thing that I'm getting at is there has not been one person, and even Conrad being upset with Colonel Hall and some of the things he said, he never came out and said the incident didn't happen. All he said at the end was it's possible it could have been numerous things. He was upset with the way it was handled on the speculation or discussing what what Colonel Halt felt it could be, and he didn't like that because he didn't want that out there. Because that leads to the next question and the next question, and you have to go into everything else, not only including what you were doing there, but how you handled the men, what you did, and everything else. And the Air Force to this day has not denied the incident happened. And they have not come out and gone on the record and said we were wrong or we were doing what we were doing was wrong or what we did wrong, including the people that we reported to, Lieutenant Baran and Master Sergeant Chandler, and Jim and I went on and retired from the Air Force, and we went on to distinguished careers and being in charge of things, including Colonel Hall and everybody else involved. So, therefore, ultimately, when you get down to this, is they're not even sure what happened to us, and they're admitting that. Well, um, uh, two things. One, uh, going back to the Conrad, to uh, Colonel Conrad's um, statement, would you say that? I, I think Colonel Conrad made it clear that um, what he was truly upset about was um, an implication, a suggestion. You could go so far as to say that it was a conclusion in Colonel Holt's memo that this thing was otherworldly. Was that what set Colonel Conrad off the most? 
Charlotte and it upset General Williams. If you look at the interview he did with James Fox, he even said that, you know, he said he, well, he, well, that, that's where you can clearly see that there was a cover up going on when he says he wasn't aware of the memo and it being released. And, and it's clear. What he's trying to say to everybody is, is that he, if something was passed on up to higher command within the MOD and stuff and he wasn't briefed on it, which is ludicrous. That would never happen. And, and if he's saying that happened, that means that he didn't have control of his base or his command structure and people were running behind his back and doing things. And that shows total lack of control. And trust me, when you're at the largest um, pack fire wing in the Air Force, that doesn't go on. They knew exactly what was going on as far as that people were being interviewed and things were going on. Now, what they may not have known is exactly where the investigation was going, and they may have done that for several reasons, but that was clear that they were aware of something was going on, and nothing would have left that base without his authority. I see. So what you're saying is that they were aware that the OSI was on the base interviewing personnel, trying to run an investigation, even if they were not told by the OSI uh, the details of what was coming out in that investigation, and in fact, that the people such as um, um, Jim Peniston giving reports, giving statements to the OSI, those statements, the ac- those accurate statements were not shared with the command structure. Would that be correct? Yeah, and OSI is not required to. They work independently of everybody, okay? They're an independent agency that operates on the base. They work in counterintelligence and everything else. And the other thing is, is when you look at this, and you look at what they're doing, they may not want to brief these guys on what's going on. Because if you don't know exactly what's being said, or they're told not to let them know what's going on, then you don't have to answer it. And if you look at the way they sidestep some of this stuff and refuse to comment on it, and, and the way they said certain things, it sure clearly shows that. And ultimately, even look at what Lord Hill Norton said. How could you not investigate this and not look at the implications of what went on? And the fact that there was U.S. personnel off the base in a British forest looking at stuff, reporting strange objects, how would they not investigate it and not take it from there? And the fact stands out that we were never relieved of duty. We were never relieved of duty, and we were never pushed aside because if, in fact, and this story didn't break then, and that's what people don't want to talk about. This story didn't break for a couple of years afterwards. So, in fact, it could relieved us of duty, they could have pulled our PRP, and they could have done more um, analysis with us to include even going in and seeing a psychologist. None of that happened. So they knew no, we had an incident, no, and they knew something happened to us. Let well, me double this is, off with John go ahead. on that. Uh, okay. Air Force regulations, OSI regulations, Department of Defense regulations, the 5200 are specific with PRP. If there's anything that can endanger or is questionable on conduct, uh, whether it's uh, or anything abnormal, everybody's responsibility is to uh, take action on those regulations. And what should have been done if there was a problem with the reliability of the information coming in is we should have been re- immediately relieved of duty we should have had an independent evaluation done over at the uh, uh, by the uh, hospital. Uh, then they would have investigated it. All uh, the OSI would have had a regulatory investigation of it. 
the wing commander would have had to, so would the base commander, so would the squadron commander, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, they would have had to investigate it, and you had two things they could have done. One, were temporarily relieved under PRP, right, which means that they investigate and they determine that we're okay now and we're back on PRP and get recertified. Or they permanently decertify us under PRP, which means we can't even carry a gun. Well, so that did not happen, Bill. You know why okay. that didn't happen? Why? That because was my next were, question. Thank you. There's multiple investigations going on in that base, unbeknownst to the other. It's just the way the Air Force works. The wing commander had directed one. The base commander probably directed one. OSI was doing one. Another agency was doing one. And none of them knew what the other one was doing. Well, when you say another agency was doing one, would that have been the CIA? Oh, and of course not. No, the CIA yeah. would have nothing to do with it. Okay. Well, look, if you look at, if you wait a minute, I want to say one more thing. If you look sure. at the agencies and what they're what they do, okay, CIA is covert. Okay, the agencies that look into national security and look at the implications of the co- uh, country are what Department of Intelligence, okay, and NSA. Yes. Okay. What's the Department of and Intelligence? Yeah, there was an NSA station right outside of Bentwaters over at the Orford Nest. At Orford Nest? Yes, they had a facility on Orford Nest. So if the NSA had a facility on Orford Nest, they would have known that there was a bar. I will get to the Orford Nest story later, but they would have known that there was a bar on the land side of the Orford Nest light that would have prevented that light from playing across the land, correct? They would have known exactly what was going on there because you go into the whole Orford Nest and then you go into Colville Nest is what they were working on. And there's all kinds of things that that area had going on as far as projects and different things going on. And they were right in the middle of all that. So what does that tell you? Uh, It tells me that they knew a lot more that was going on when it was going on, right? Right. Right, but I do believe that also, what, what's the agency at uh, Chick Sands, uh, John? The part, DIA, Department. I was going to ask you if DIA was involved. DIA, I, that could very well have been the people inside uh, uh, the OSI building, or it could have been NSA. I do not know. Everybody wears civilian clothes. So I don't know exactly who talked to me at that building. Well, look, both Jim, uh, both Jim and John, here's here's... Here's a fact that's coming out now that I don't think has been has come out before. I mean, it's come out. But to put it bluntly, all the statements that were made publicly, oh, the Air Force never investigated. Oh, the military never investigated. That's absolutely not true that the United States military and United States intelligence in some form or another did investigate this. They did investigate this right away. The issue was that the investigation was not supposed to be made public, even revealing the nature of that investigation, the details of that, to the base chain of command. Is that true? Well, yeah. OSI well, doesn't understand the investigation, so I don't know. I don't know what that was told to. Uh, uh, it's obvious that the base command structure did not know everything. 
but I do believe they had a cursory briefing from OSI that an investigation was going on, and I think that's what John was talking about with uh, uh, General Williams and uh, Colonel Conrad. They had to know that OSI was doing an independent investigation, just not the details. Yeah, and, and other agencies involved. And, and the thing is, is that you would do this when it's clear that the people involved have stated they're not sure what happened to us and that they understood that we clearly didn't know what was going on as far as we couldn't explain what it was, so they're going to look into it. And, of course, they don't want this out. Do you want that all over the news and all out there? Okay, then let me ask you this, okay? Um, I don't want to put you in a corner about commenting on David Clark, but does David Clark, who is beating the drum that nobody that this, that everybody's jumping to conclusions about this, uh, do you think that um, does he know this? What you're telling me he now? Knows. That he he knows. David Clark and I have gone back and forth, and I wish you would have come on the show because he will he will completely and I don't understand why attack Carl Hall's night. He will go after that vigorously. But on the night that happened with Jim and I, he has openly stated, even on the BBC, that he's not sure what happened to us. And that well, he believes re- that something unexplainable happened to us. Well, the reason I'm beating the drum about this, guys, is this, that skeptics have been on the war path about this ever since the day after. And they've been on the war path with evidence that is, or statements at best that are disingenuous. So, for example, David Clark will seize on uh, Colonel Conrad's comments about Colonel Halt and about what he did or did not see. And yet what you're telling me is that you're you've told him that statements made to Colonel Conrad were statements given to Air Force personnel by the OSI that were essentially statements that were not true, that there was a difference between the two. I'm not sure if David Clark heard Jim talk about that one, that one, that particular part about how his statement wasn't. I'm not going to say it's not true. Uh, Bill, I'm not saying that those statements aren't true, that the one that the OSI had... uh, end up uh, eventually somehow giving to uh, the command section. Uh, I'm saying it was very generic. Okay, that's what I'm saying. The detail okay, was well, out, and I'll tell you why. Probably because it was top secret. My oh, yeah, I no, there's no, sure it was yeah, there's no argument about that. No, I guess my you know, issue is that the, uh, there were things omitted from the statement. I mean, so there's common ground in both statements. What you, uh, what Colonel uh, Conrad reported, you said was that you actually saw the light. Okay, and that's true. In both statements you've made, both to the press club and to Colonel Conrad, you saw the light in the forest. The difference is how close you were to the light. The omission was that you touched the object; that it was a solid object, a structured object, and that um, you, in your sketchbook wrote down um, the graphics that were on the side of the object. Those are omitted from the Conrad statement. Bill, they didn't know about the notebook. Okay. I'll tell you what, and maybe they want plausible deniability on the command section. That's that's what John was talking about there earlier, that if they don't know everything that's going on, or if they have one version that was given out by the uh, OSI, that is uh, enough to have plausible deniability for them. 
maybe that is just a protectionism for the Air Force and Department of Defense. That makes perfect sense. Did you tell the OSI about the sketchbook? Hell no. Okay. (laughs) No way way would I tell them that. I tell you what, I was scared to death in there. They were were threatening me with my, my career. They said, you come clean now and tell us everything. And we'll go ahead. This will go away. Don't worry about it. Hey, I talked. No problem at all. What did you tell them? I gave them a three-page, handwritten um, report of everything that uh, transpired out there. Nothing has changed. That information I gave them that night, that morning, is the same information that uh, has been released at the press club. But you didn't tell them about the sketchbook. Well, no, it's my notebook. Right. I tell okay. you, the following morning, everything was clear in my mind. I didn't need mm-hmm. to look at my notebook. Why would I bring well, that up? Well, the reason I'm asking is, since you had drawn the object, sketched the object, and written out the graphics, did you tell them about that? I did go ahead and do the, uh, the glyphs, if that's what you're talking about, yes. And I'll tell yes. you what, that was etched in my mind. You have to put yourself in my position. That stuff, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I'm not going to forget that. I can, today I can sit down and write exactly those same glyphs. It's just that, uh, that's etched. I mean, um. Well, well see, uh, that's the point that I'm trying to get to. So you told them about the glyphs and you told them about the structure of the object. Yet the statement that was made to Colonel Conrad Mm-hmm. did not include the glyphs, and did not include the structured object. Yeah, and that's the question you have to ask OSI, why they want to sanitize it. I have no idea. Okay, fine, but that's, so, uh, that's where I'm saying there's a disconnect between the two, and so a skeptic, like a, a David Clark or someone else, will seize on the statement that uh, Colonel Conrad made in order to um, refute you and say that somehow you've made something up, when in fact you didn't, what happened was Colonel Conrad received the OSI statement, not the statement you gave to the OSI. Would that be a correct characterization? I guess so. I guess so. I really don't care what David Clark thinks about it. Uh, But if you, why, why is that the only statement that's not signed? Ask yourself that. Right. I mean, that's... That's what we're trying to get to. Um, I, I want to move along to, um, to you, Jim, and to John also about a couple of other things that skeptics have said. The big thing was that um, the issue of radiation on the landing site, what was in David Clark's um, uh, 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 criticism of the stories that came out, he said that when the site was later tested for radiation. Uh, In fact, there was no difference between the radiation on the site and the background radiation. That was A. Or B, that the instruments the United States Air Force were using, using, those instruments were not precise enough to give an accurate reading so that a negligible difference in the radiation on the landing site and the background radiation, it was not substantial, and it was only negligible. So, therefore, the radiation argument goes away. Jim, can well, you comment on that? Yeah, I'll be glad to comment. I'm not going to argue with the uh, the Air Force's way of doing things, but 
I'm going by what Nick Pope said in the Ministry of Defense. They conducted their own investigation out there of the, of the radiation, and it was significantly higher. And there's documents saying that. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not a radiation expert. I can tell you what happened that night. Uh, I can tell you that uh, the craft is warm to touch. Uh, does that mean because it was hot from air movement or from radiation? I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and go with the MOD on it because uh, they were concerned enough to send the team out there and to investigate it themselves and to do written correspondence on it that it was significantly higher than background radiation. So really, Clark will have to argue that with the MOD. No, but that's the fact that I'm after. What, what the implication was is that the United States Air Force conducted the test and the United States Air Force was incompetent to conduct the test accurately because its equipment wasn't precise enough. And you're saying flat out that it was the British MOD that conducted the test with British equipment and that the results of that test made their way into documents. And those documents were British documents, not American documents. And therefore, the issue is a British issue. And it says exactly what you're saying, that there was a significant difference between the radiation at the landing site and the background radiation. Would that be fair? Well, Bill, that's all I got to go with. Uh, the night that we were out there, we had no equipment like that. Uh, Halt's night did have equipment out there. I'm not an expert on on the type of equipment they use, so I'm going to go by the Fisher report from the MOD. And uh, that's just because uh, uh, that's the only uh, written correspondence I've seen officially that said it was significantly higher. Um uh, and so that's what I'm going to go with on it. I mean, does the Air Force uh, have stuff out there on a second uh, incident? Apparently so. Colonel Hulk told me that. Uh, the reliability of the stuff, I have no idea. I'm not, uh, that's not my area of expertise by no means. Well, well John, don't you think that it's uh, really interesting, to say the least, that you have two agencies, two countries, that are investigating um, residual evidence at, um, a witnessed a witnessed crash site, and yet the skeptics and this show about the skeptical arguments that the skeptics go after a test done on the second night by the United States, possibly by the Air Force, and not what's in the actual files of the MOD. Do you find that incredible, John? Well, yeah, but I also find it incredible that how do they know why equipment didn't work right or not? Um, um, the guy out there was disaster preparedness. He was trained in handling equipment. On the tape, you hear that they're getting readings. They're, they talk about them being above and, and quite, you know, above normal. Monroe Nevels has stated they did a test prior, and the readings they got were different. So they're grasping at straws. They just, anything is credible. Even the Colonel Hall tape, they've gone as far as saying they staged it. So anything out there that's there that can lead credence to it, they attack it in that way. And the MOD document agrees that there was more than above background radiation. The MOD so, was the one that admitted that General Gabriel came in and took all, all the information. So, so what's incredible is why would a skeptic only focus on one possible thing and not even bring up the fact that his own government measured the radiation and found it to be significantly different. And it's documented uh, think, in MOD documents. I think you need to look at uh, his relationship with the MOD. 
I think you're going to find it's closer to you the, than you would suspect. The other thing is you got to keep in mind is even though on the status of forces agreement, um, that was uh, we had the RAF presence there. We had a, com- a commander. Uh, he was a figurehead, and uh, according to SALFA agreement, and I'll tell you what. We're supposed to brief the British and everything. We never, we never briefed them. We did what we wanted to on that base. Whatever was in the interest of the United States government, we did. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, and the British were left out from the from the get go. I do believe, and that's because we gave them cursory information. I do believe that, and I don't think that uh, uh, the you know the United States shared very much at all as far as information with them, and that's what prompted them to go out and do their own investigation. I think the well, British are sort of upset with that, by the way. Well, now, what about the statement that David Clark made that um, the British police were contacted because United States personnel were on British territory in Reddlesham Forest and British police investigated that, as well, well that as RAF? Our that covered our butts, didn't it? We had, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I'm sure we had a reason for we did everything. Uh, and that was to cover our butts on that because there's a lot of activity going on in the Queen's Forest right there. That's true. Were you guys armed when you went into the forest? No, I was not. No. Okay. The um, I want to get to I want to get to the impressions in the far on the forest floor. Uh, David Clark said they were minimal impressions. They weren't that deep. They were nothing. You couldn't even distinguish these from other kinds of depressions, probably made by an animal. I'll I'll leave Vincent Thurkettle out for later because he's a whole separate story. But um, there you go. I mean, um, Jim, you saw the impressions. Uh, You took the plaster casts. Could you describe the impressions to us as you remember them? Well, the atmosphere, uh, the temperature, you know, at that time of year is around 32 degrees, so it's about freezing. So the ground is going to be frozen, too. And uh, those impressions were anywhere from an inch and a half to two inches in the ground. Uh, John and I did see them immediately after uh, uh, the following morning, the uh, impressions, too. Uh, uh, dozens of other Air Force uh, personnel did. Um Vince, Vince, you talk about him. Well, I confronted him in the forest, uh, I believe, in 2004 with that. We were shooting a documentary out there. And I said, okay, Vince, let me show you what's going on here. Because he's saying it was rabbit scrapings or some Correct. wild stuff Correct. like that. And, and I, in his response, which is on camera, so, you know, this is all a whole different ball game. he says what you're saying. He says, I, I think I was mistaken. That's what he said on film. Well, what's so funny, and yet five years later, four years later, no, three years later, in 2007, he goes back to his rabbit uh, scrapings argument and says all the Americans were stupid. Well, I'm afraid we have to take a break, fellas, for the top of the hour. We're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. It's our monthly special here on AchieveRadio.com and our fifth in our historic series on the Rendlesham Forest Incidents of 1980. And we will be right back. Stay with us. We'll be taking calls in our second hour. I'll give you the number when we come back. But uh, make sure you, you don't touch that dial. Stay with us.
AchieveRadio.com. Hi, folks. This is Paul Eno, co-host of Behind the Paranormal here on Achieve Radio. We're very pleased to have as our sponsor New River Press and Barking Cat Books, publishers of some of the most unusual New Age titles on the market today. Along with four books by moi, New River Press offers the blockbuster on animal communication, Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator by Karen Anderson, Shadows on My Shift, Real Life Stories of a Psychic EMT by Psychic Medium Sherry Lee Devereaux, Achieve Radio talk show host of Opening Your Intuitive Eyes, and in a true story that will break your heart with its beauty, especially if you've ever lost a child, there's 41 Signs of Hope by Dave Kane about the ongoing love and communication between a father and a mother and their son, youngest victim of the 2003 nightclub fire in Rhode Island. Finally, from Barking Cat Books, don't miss the action adventure that spans a thousand years, Heaven's Wave, a novel of the doomsday prophecy of 2012 by Dierline. Visit NewRiverPress.com, BarkingCatBooks.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookstore. Howdy, Winchester here. You know, in the Old West, when cities and states were young, the biggest social event of the year was Election Day. People came from hundreds of miles to gather together, talk politics, visit, and exercise their right to vote. They took pride in shaping the world of tomorrow. Nowadays, if one-third of the people vote, that's considered great. I hear, well, my vote ain't gonna matter, or there's no one good to vote for. To me, that sounds like, I just don't care. And all the heavy-duty 